thing is running according to plan. I don't care what's happened in the news. I don't care what's happened around the world. You know, this COVID thing is beating us down. It is. It just doesn't go away. You get out of bed in the morning and you open a door and this thing is all over the place. I talked to my friends in uh, Africa this week and uh, I've got a, a pastor friend in Uganda and he's been heavily hit by it over there in Uganda. So it's just not some conspiracy thing out there as we know. It's not just something that's confined to the United States. It is all over the world. It is an equal opportunity offender, as my Hebrew teacher used to like to say. Equal opportunity offender. But God is able to move through those things and still bless and still equip His people to do what they need to do. So they weren't able to meet in church, so God blessed this pastor with a radio tower, brought Okay. He can broadcast his services in a five-kilometer range. Amen? That's getting the gospel out in a five-kilometer range. I don't know how far that would go out. That would pretty much cover the Hancock city limits, right? Yeah? And he broadcasts at 6 a.m., at noon, and 6 p.m. Praise God. The word is getting out. So, it, you know, when they say, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. Same thing with the Lord. You know, let's use what we have. Let's look to Him, and in Him and through Christ, we get the victory. And we have the victory, but we have to keep taking it. That's communicated for us all throughout the Old Testament. God left some of the enemy in the land so that the people of Israel would know how to war. They had to go up and do what? Possess all of the land. And there is land in our community, there's land in our lives, metaphorically speaking, that we need to possess. And sometimes it's a battle, and sometimes it's a fight. We were singing this morning, I saw the light, and as I was uh, up here singing that song, I thought about our message this morning. We're in Daniel chapter 4, we're continuing through Daniel. And this is about Nebuchadnezzar, who I believe finally saw the light. Now, he saw the light a couple times before this, but it seems it took a number of times before God could finally reach him and get to him. And it helps if we can put ourselves into the story. As I'm going chronologically through the book of Daniel, there are some times where you'll hit a chapter or you'll hit a week where maybe you aren't necessarily feeling it, but this is a wonderful story. Everything in the first six chapters of Daniel just magnificent stories, but there's so much more than stories. As I said, we tend to dismiss some of these things or maybe minimize them because we're so familiar with them or we've heard them in Sunday school, but let's remember these are not fairy tales. This is not Aesop's fairy tales. These are very real, and they're put in the Word for a specific purpose, and they're teaching very specific things. Now, we know that we get to the second half of the book, Daniel chapter 7 through 12, we're looking at a lot more prophecy, but that does not minimize the role of what's going on in the first six chapters. And this week, I was scrolling through looking for something to watch, and I'm becoming much more selective and much more discriminating in trying to find something to watch. I just have absolutely no taste for a lot of the garbage that's out there, and, and frankly, it, it's just becoming absolutely repulsive. So I stumbled across a, uh, a documentary on the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, and it's one of the seven wonders of the world, but the, uh, the people that, who have written about it that tell us that these Hanging Gardens exist never actually saw them. 
So there is some debate as to whether or not they belonged in Babylon, and the documentary that I saw thought that perhaps we had the wrong king in the wrong place, that it was actually King Sennacherib, and it actually took place in Nineveh. And when you see the evidence for that, that's not far-fetched, but regardless of whether they were in Nineveh with Sennacherib, who came before Babylon, or whether they were in Babylon, both of these kings were really, really great kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib of Assyria. Nineveh was in Assyria. And when I saw the things that Sennacherib had built, the, the canals that he made, the, the walls that had his inscriptions on them and his, uh, uh, his picture and the, the things that they could put into their, their art and the way that they communicated, it really is astounding what these guys were able to do. You get a picture of this when you look at the pyramids, how old they are, and scientists today still don't understand how these pyramids were made. But Sennacherib had these, these buildings and these canals and these walkways that were formed out of two million perfectly formed stones. And you look at these things and you wonder, wow, how did they do it? So these guys had majestic kingdoms. I mean, when you look at Babylon, uh, the city itself was a wonder. The walls were 300 to 350 feet high. They were 87 feet thick. You could race chariots around the tops of the walls. The, the river Euphrates ran diagonally through the city. And these guys, Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar, they were world rulers at the time that they were in power. And you could understand why someone in human nature could be lifted up with pride. We are all bent toward pride unless we see the light and the Lord comes in. And even at that, when Christ comes into our heart, we have to continually, continually fight against pride. I believe the Lord allows things into our hearts and into our lives uh, the same way that he allowed into Paul's life when he gave him a thorn of flesh to help to keep us humble. And uh, that's a prayer that we need to pray all the time, every single one of us, because we are prone toward pride, toward getting puffed up over even the slightest achievements. Others of us have such a low self-esteem that maybe we need a little bit better, but uh, God resists the proud, and He gives grace to the humble. So this morning, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to look at this story of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is a, almost an autobiography by Nebuchadnezzar, although it's included in the book of Daniel here. And he opens in chapter 4, verse 1, by saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, and this is the king writing, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all of the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, having read the rest of the story and getting to the point where you know what happens to Nebuchadnezzar at the end of this chapter, if you do, and most of us do, I don't know how you feel about him. Because we know what happens at the end, maybe we're more sympathetic to him. There are times I look at him and I'm not so sympathetic to him. But as this chapter opens up, maybe, maybe we feel that Nebuchadnezzar is back on our side. Do you feel that way? I could see him standing up here and testifying this morning. This is a great prologue to the chapter. He'd be up here singing the great I am, I think, based upon what we read in this chapter. He saw the light. And so he's opening and talking about how wonderful the Lord is. 
Some have characterized this chapter as the gospel according to Nebuchadnezzar. I didn't want to go that far with it. (laughs) John Calvin's not convinced that he got saved. It sure does look like he got converted. We'll take the text for what it is. But he definitely saw the light, and I believe that he had an experience with the Most High and the Almighty God. So he goes on to relate his dream, and we know that he had a dream back in chapter 2, which we covered that a few weeks ago. In verse 4 he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And again, it was a magnificent house and a magnificent palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. And at last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, Chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now, if you're like me, when you have a dream, oftentimes you wake up and you can't remember, or you can just remember parts of the dream, or perhaps they're like my dreams, and they're just absolutely bizarre. I mean, if I would relate them to you, they don't make an ounce of sense. Do you have dreams like that? Does anybody have a dream where you wake up and you can remember it vividly and you could relate it, something like this? This has to come from the Lord. This is a very, very vivid dream that he's relating here. He's, he's putting all the details in it. Uh, I, I had dreams last night and they were just strange. And you know, I was, I, was, I was up and I was asleep and I was up and I was asleep. It didn't matter, I went back to sleep, went right back into those strange dreams. You think you wake up and you get a reset. And you wake up and you start wondering, where do those dreams come from? And I'm not saying any of them were from the Lord. They were just bizarre dreams. And I did not have pizza and I did not have tacos late last night. I ate very well yesterday. So it wasn't that. So he continues in verse 18, I saw the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said, thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. Verse 17, the sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it up over the lowliest, the lowliest of men. 
This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Again, let's come back to Nebuchadnezzar's relating of the dream. This time he didn't hide the dream or not remember it. He comes right out and tells them the dream and asks for the interpretation. But the details in here, and I imagine that when the point of the dream came where the Holy One and the watchers said, cut down the tree, this had to be quite alarming to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, It said that the dream made him afraid. Other translations say that the dream terrified him. And you get the feeling that he knows this is not going to go well for him. Now, I don't remember a lot of details before I was 10 years old. I have vivid, uh, a few vivid memories, but not much. And the older I get, the more they fade. But there are things that I remember. I remember things better in my teens, and I can remember a lot of stuff in my 20s. So it seems that probably 25 years roughly have passed since Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the statue with the head of gold and the, the, silver, the silver chest and everything. And uh, here he is 25 years later. Now, I'm willing to venture to say that Nebuchadnezzar vividly remembered that encounter with Daniel. So I'm wondering why Daniel's not present when Nebuchadnezzar calls in all the wise men to interpret this dream. Where is he? And there's a couple theories on this. Uh, Oftentimes, the people of the world will forget, not necessarily forget, but for the moment, forget what the Lord has done and we turn to worldly counselors. And then at the last minute, when we're finally at our, our wit's end, we turn to the Lord. Now, the Lord wants to reverse that so that we go to Him first, and the world would be our last resort, and hopefully we don't have to go there, because if God can't help us, who's going to help us? But the people of the world tend to rely on themselves because we prefer self-strength. Daniel may have been laying back. Daniel may have been sitting back because he was promoted to a position of prominence and influence, and he may have sent all the wise men in ahead of time so that they were going to fumble and fail, and then Daniel could walk in and once again represent the Lord. But we don't know why. Um, So Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, knows right now that things are not going well for him. Again, he is the most powerful ruler in the earth at this point in time. We've already had encounters with him in chapter 2 where he had the dream of the statue, and he couldn't He didn't tell Daniel the dream, but Daniel interpreted and told him what was going on. And it had to be quite a revelation to him of the empires. And he knew that he was the head of gold. And and according to Daniel and his interpretation, he says, God made you the head of gold and he's given you favor. And then for whatever reason, some 20 years later, Nebuchadnezzar makes the image in Daniel chapter 3 that we talked about last week. And he has everybody bow down to the image. And if you didn't, you're cast into the fiery furnace. And he had an encounter there. So in chapter 2, he has an encounter with Daniel because he knows that in Daniel is the spirit of the holy gods or the holy God. Either way, it can be uh, translated both ways. Nebuchadnezzar knows this. And then he has this amazing encounter in chapter 3 where he sees the fourth person walking in the fire. So this was most likely a, uh, an oven out in the middle of the desert. Why it was there, we don't know. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar had it built just for the purpose of punishing people that didn't want to bow down to his idol. But it seems that there was an opening to it, but that you would toss the, uh, the captives into the furnace in the top. And when he tossed them in, we know what happened. The fire burned off the ropes, and they were set free, and they're walking in the fire 
most likely with Jesus. So he's had these encounters already to this point. He's also been appointed and anointed. Yes, I'm using that word, appointed and anointed by God. God sets kings up and he pulls kings down. He has been anointed by God for such a time as this. God has placed him in this role. Nebuchadnezzar is gifted and he is favored by the Lord. He just doesn't necessarily realize it. He thinks this is coming from himself, as so many of us do. We forget that the gifts that we have come from the Lord, and they're simply gifts. He gives them, and he takes them away. It's like a rental car. You borrow it, and then you give it back. (laughs) The Lord gives it to you, and eventually we're going to give it back. And maybe we cast it before the Lord when we get to heaven as crowns for everything that the Lord's done for us and in us and through us. But it's all the Lord. He does all the work. We know that he is called God's servant from Jeremiah. He says, my servant Nebuchadnezzar. We've talked about the revelation of himself to, uh, of God to Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 2 and 3. Yet the problem is Nebuchadnezzar has not yet made the decision to serve the Most High God. At times he has given what they might refer to as a tip of the hat to Daniel's God, but he's not made the conversion yet. He has this dream, and H.A. Ironside observes this, this parallel over in Job chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, it's worth turning to this, and I'm not going to read much of it, but Job chapter 14, uh, Job chapter 33 and verse 14, and when you go home, if you want to read this this week, 14 all the way to 30, And look at the parallel between what's written here in Job and what we're seeing in Daniel chapter 4. But I'll read just a few verses. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. This is Elihu, Elihu rebuking Job. Job's comforters were just uh, fantastic. If only we could all have comforters like that. But Elihu is rebuking Job. But he says, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. Verse 17, that he may turn man aside from his deed or from wrongdoing and conceal pride from a man, or the way the NIV renders it, or keep him from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit his life from perishing by the sword. I will stop right there for this portion. And it's amazing how this completely separate passage in the Old Testament really relates to exactly what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. God has revealed to himself at least twice that we know of in an amazing way through Daniel and through the fiery furnace. And yet Nebuchadnezzar really hasn't seen the light or gotten the message. And so he gives him this dream. Uh, you know, visions of the night, it says that he may turn a man aside from wrongdoing and keep him from pride. This is the chastening of the Lord. I'm going to tie this to Hebrews chapter 12, and you're going to have to allow a little bit of latitude there because I know the context in Hebrews chapter 12 is God chastening a son or a daughter. But God does not, he's not bound in time. We realize that. I can't even begin to relate to time the way that God relates to it. 
Einstein said that time is just a yardstick that man uses to measure one event to another. God operates in the realm of eternity. We operate in the realm of time. We know that this service has to start at 11 o'clock. Otherwise, somebody's in trouble. In Africa, it doesn't work that way. If the bishop says, I'll pick you up tomorrow at 2, he qualifies, I'll pick you up tomorrow at 2, with a very, very important phrase, all things being equal. And nothing is equal in Africa. There are surprises all over the place. That's why they say hakuna matata. No worries. And they really do relax. But here, we, we're a much more time-oriented society here in America. We operate in time. God operates outside of time. So one day is as a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is one day. So then we keep talking about the fact that Jesus' return is getting closer. God just, he doesn't relate to it the way that we do. The Father knows when Jesus is coming back. But I'll see a movie where they'll get into this Einstein physics relation of time, and it just bends my brain. My brain's not big enough to comprehend that stuff, and I leave that for the people who are really smart. But I'll see some of that stuff, and I'll go, wow, uh, I don't understand how to operate like that. I guess when I get to eternity, the Lord will reveal that to me, and maybe I can think like that. She's operating outside of time. So when he's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, if Nebuchadnezzar is eventually going to come to the Lord and receive salvation, then God can deal with him in his foreknowledge as a son, and he could chasten him. And so God is always working in our lives, even before we came to Christ. While we were yet enemies, Christ loved us. He sees those things which are not and proclaims them as though they are. So he's not bound in time. God knows where we're going to be 20 years from now, whether it's here or whether it's in eternity. He knows where we're going to be next week. And we may have absolutely no clue what that may be happening. And so he's going to, he's going to work with Nebuchadnezzar this way to keep him from wrongdoing, to, to keep him back from pride, and to keep his soul from the pit and from perishing by the sword. Now, there's a story that they like to relate in conjunction with this chapter. Some of you may have heard this before, but talking about Napoleon... In 1815, he was trying to regain power that he had lost when he'd been forcibly exiled. And so he's leading his armies against a number of other um, European countries uh, that were being led by the Duke of Wellington. And again, this is in 1815. And before the battle commenced, Napoleon, when he was speaking to one of his commanding officers, is coming up with his strategies. And he says, uh, we'll put the infantry over here, and we'll put the cavalry over there, and we'll put the artillery over here in this spot. And at the end of the day, this is what Napoleon said, England will be at the feet of France, and Wellington will be the prisoner of Napoleon. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking about our lesson in James the other night. It says, do not go and say, a year from now, we'll go into this city and we'll make money and we'll do these other things. Napoleon has got everything all planned out. But the officer responded to him and said, but we must not forget that man proposes and God disposes. Many of you may have heard this before. And Napoleon, who's all of about five foot two, this guy is not the rock. Those of you that were here for that conversation, okay, we're not going to put any time. He, he's five foot two, but he's, he's arrogant. Um, reminds me a little bit of Daffy Duck. 
Where'd that come from? But I'm thinking about Daffy right now, and he says, I may be a slob, but I'm a greedy slob. You ever you remember that one, Daffy? Yeah, Daffy, was, he, he's always great. I may be a slob, but I'm a greedy slob. And I'm thinking Napoleon said, I might be small, but I'm really a, really an amazing guy. This is what he's thinking in his head. So in his five-foot-two-inch frame, in typical arrogance, he responds to the officer and says, I want you to understand, sir, that Napoleon proposes and Napoleon disposes. Oh, my, my, my. <laughs> and he, just no wonder they're tying this into this story because as we get to the end here and hear what Nebuchadnezzar says, is just like what Napoleon's saying right here. And the writer Victor Hugo said from that moment, the Battle of Waterloo was lost. For God sent rain and hail so that the troops of Napoleon could not maneuver as he planned. And on the night of the battle, it was Napoleon who was the prisoner of Wellington and France who was at the feet of England. And I think of all the stories in the Bible where, think of Gideon. You know, the odds were 101 to him. And Wellington may have been terribly outnumbered, but God does not like pride. He does not like it. He'll tolerate it for a long time. But we never know where he's going to draw the line and say that's it. And I think of Sennacherib. I mentioned him earlier from Assyria the night that God killed 185,000 of his troops. And I think that was pretty much the end of Sennacherib's campaigns. We are not to walk in pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. For lack of a better title this morning, I called this message Pride Goes Before Destruction because it's fitting. But this is an amazing illustration here with Napoleon, how God got in there. And it doesn't take much from the Lord to mess up our plans. Much better if we pray, if the Lord wills, we'll do such and such. So let's continue so that we can move through our story. Where's Wanda? There she is. Wanda, I have this problem all the time. You think you don't have enough material and then you've got to keep moving. So it's a... It's the way that it is. Verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree which you saw, and we're going to He's going to repeat what we've already heard, that grew strong so that it reached to the top of the heaven, And it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. And if Nebuchadnezzar wasn't already alarmed and concerned, you can imagine him right there taking a very deep gulp. Uh Uh-oh, this is not looking good for me. Because he knows one thing about Daniel, that if Daniel tells him what the interpretation of, it's going to be coming to pass. This is a day of, of reckoning. We have those days of reckoning. You dread one of those. Maybe your dad told you when you were young, or maybe your mom said you wait till your father gets home, and then he's going to deal with you. I don't know, maybe it's the other way around, but there was a day of reckoning when you were dreading. Well, the day of reckoning has come to Nebuchadnezzar. It is you. O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. He was the greatest ruler 
in the earth at the time. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, or messenger, this is a messenger from heaven, come down and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass. This is the interpretation, O king, and I read that quickly because we've already heard that part earlier. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven till seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know, or for the purpose that you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity." There's times in the Old Testament where they say, let us call a fast. Let us humble ourselves before the Lord. Who knows, perhaps the Lord may relent. You ever have something come into your life and you know that perhaps it is discipline or chastening of the Lord, and maybe you've sat before the Lord's throne and you said, these are my just desserts. I absolutely deserve this, Lord. I am worthy of death. I was relating to someone this week the story of uh, David and Bathsheba. David committed at least two major crimes, at least two. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he had her husband murdered. He was worthy of death by Old Testament law, absolutely worthy of death, and he should have died. But the Most High, in his long-suffering and his mercy, decided that David was going to live. Other people died for much less. And you go before the Lord, and David said, God said, you're going to lose the child. And David went before the Lord, and he prayed and fasted, and he got up, and the child was dead. And they said to him, you know, my Lord, are you going to get up? He said, basically, you know, the Lord's decided to take him. What else can I do? I need to get on with my life. So we sit before the Lord, and we realize that maybe there are things in our life they are not an attack of the enemy. Maybe they're there because God has placed them there, and we might have to endure that. Or perhaps... Through our turning and repenting and humbling ourselves, the Lord may turn and have a different result. That's what Daniel's appealing for this king to do in verse 27. He's really, in his compassion, preaching the gospel. Many people are often happy, especially in this country today, to stand in the pulpit and pronounce judgment. Judgment, judgment. God's going to get them. He's going to kill those bad people, those evil people. How do we know who's evil and bad? We know what their deeds are, but we have characterized Nebuchadnezzar as evil and bad. Were we there back at the time? Yes, we would have. But again, there are people out there today in positions of politics and Hollywood and other things that God may know the end from the beginning. He does know the end from the beginning, that he's got a conversion planned for them that we haven't yet seen, and he treats them accordingly. So we appeal to God on the basis of His sovereignty, His long-suffering, His kindness, and His love. And Daniel is appealing to the king in compassion. We, we know so little about Daniel's relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, but it really does seem that he has a genuine fondness for the king. He could just be acting according to Scripture 
and having a humble attitude toward the rulers and authorities that many of us sometimes lack. When we see what's going on in this nation, we get extremely upset and we are prone to make comments that probably aren't very submissive and very humbling. And we have to keep in mind the message that's in these first six chapters of Daniel. God is in control. He sets kings up. There is no one in power today. Let's just confine it to the United States that God has not allowed to be there. Sometimes He gives us things after our own hearts. And sometimes we suffer along with the the wicked. We suffer right alongside them. Let the wheat grow along with the tares. And it's just part of the way that it is. Things look bad today. They look bleak. But we take heart in the fact that God is still in control. So Daniel really seems to like this king. And he says to him, O king, may this dream be to your enemies and to those who hate you. Or another way that you could put it, and the the commentators differ on on what this means, is um, this dream and the fulfillment thereof will be pleasing to your enemies. I tend to lean toward the first part. Daniel's saying, oh, I wish wish this dream would be on your enemies. I, I don't know why Daniel liked this king so much, but he really does seem to like him. And he's appealing to him, oh, king, repent. Please turn from your ways. So his compassion is evident, even as he communicates God's judgment. So let's go to verse 28. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so it's a year later, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And back in the Old Testament times, roofs were flat. That's why Bathsheba was taking a bath on her roof. That's why the Old Testament talks about putting a fence around your roof. That doesn't apply to us today unless you have a flat roof. But... The spirit of that does apply. Put a fence around your swimming pool. What's the purpose of having the fence around the roof? So someone doesn't fall off and die. What's the purpose of putting a fence around your swimming pool? So someone doesn't fall in and die. So we have to separate these things. But the roofs were flat. So King Nebuchadnezzar is walking on his flat roof, which is where David was walking when he saw Bathsheba, walking on the roof of his palace. And he said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. I mean, it was instant. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Now this in some ways is a prelude to what I believe we'll talk about next week when we see the handwriting on the wall. The handwriting on the wall is an amazingly sober moment because it affects the entire kingdom. This is a sober moment too because right there, Nebuchadnezzar is getting the judgment that was he was warned about a year earlier and he failed to take Daniel's advice. You shall be driven from men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, this is the third time we hear this in this chapter, until you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom or whomever he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Now, I don't know how this was related to you when you were young and in Sunday school or how you have interpreted this as, uh, as you've read it, those of you that have read the story before, I would imagine that most of us have, uh, 
Uh, we imagine perhaps that there was this transformation where God turned Nebuchadnezzar into an animal. Anybody seen it that way that will admit it? No, just me. Okay, that's what I thought. There is actually a, a term for this condition, at least what, what many of the scholars believe the condition is that Nebuchadnezzar had, and uh, it is boanthropy or lycanthropy. You familiar with these, Travis? Okay. <laughs> boanthropy or lycanthropy is where a human being thinks of himself as an ox or a dog or a wolf. Lycanthropy comes from the word lyco, which means wolf, and the Greek word anthropos, and anthropos means man. So it's the wolf man. Or the boanthropy come from the word bovine. So it's boanthropy where the person thinks they're a cow. You go look these words up on the internet, you will see pictures of people on all fours that believe that they are an animal. Now, we're not as familiar with this today because they just don't let these people roam the countryside anymore, at least not in the United States. But that's what they used to do. They just leave them out there on their own, defend for themselves, and people wouldn't bother them. So Nebuchadnezzar, at least to some extent, seems to be suffering from this. And the language here that his hair grew long as feathers, there was nobody grooming him or taking care of him. And I don't know, his nails probably grew very tough because of what he was out there doing. But he, his mind snapped. This extremely powerful, amazing, successful ruler of the earth who was anointed by the Lord, appointed by the Lord, called God's servant, the greatest leader in the world at that time, immediately his mind snaps. And this mental illness comes upon him, and it could have been more profound than that, depending upon what God did. But he is on all fours. He thinks he's a wolf, or he thinks he's an ox, or something to that extent, and he's eating grass, and he's going to be left out there. And when it talks about iron bands, perhaps they, they, they caged him in. Perhaps they put a fence out there around him where he could, he could be within the confines of the kingdom, and yet he's still not in power, and this comes over top of him. So the first thing that I see here, and I'm trying to move along, I really am. The first thing that I see here is Nebuchadnezzar has another of what I like to call the and suddenly moment. I introduced this to you when Paul's on the road to Damascus and suddenly a light shined from heaven. This is an and suddenly moment in Nebuchadnezzar's life because as soon as the words came out of his mouth, immediately and suddenly his mind snapped and things changed for him. We have hopefully had an unsunly moment with Christ where the Lord has come and touched our lives. We've seen the light. We've come to the Lord. But there are other and suddenly moments that happen in our life in an instant that will change our lives. Three years ago, I was in Texas. I was there for ministry. I was there to, uh, to meet uh, a bishop friend of mine from Tanzania who you may have the opportunity to meet in a few weeks. I hope so. And uh, my GPS did not tell me to make a right-hand turn, and I missed the turn, and I went down a little while later, a little, a little way later, to make a left-hand turn, and I got rear-ended in uh, a very uh, hard car crash, and the circumstances surrounding the crash were bizarre, and I won't go into telling you about that. But just to say that that moment changed my life from, from then forward. It's been three years, but I, I'm now living with a neck injury all the time, it's a direct result of that. And I've been to therapy, and there's only so much I can do with it. I'm going to live there because, and suddenly, I got rear-ended. On a much larger scale, 
And then suddenly moment may be that you're driving along and you're hit by a drunk driver and you're killed instantly. Or you down in a plane crash or something else bizarre. This life is filled with and suddenly moments, which is why we need to be living and hidden in the hollow of God's hand, in the center of God's will, because there is no safer place in this world to be than in the center of God's will. And if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, you need to make that decision because inside the will of God, there is peace, comfort, safety. Outside the will of God, nothing but uncertainty and eventual death and a spiritual death too. So he has this, this and suddenly moment. As the words were in the king's mouth, the voice from heaven fell. I mentioned that uh, Hebrews chapter 12, God is chastening. I believe he's chastening. They say that God punished Nebuchadnezzar. I believe he's chastening him. God wants to restore Nebuchadnezzar. We chasten for the purpose of restoration. We punish for the purpose of judgment. I believe God is chastening Nebuchadnezzar because he wants to bring him around and said, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said, whenever you acknowledge that heaven rules over the kingdoms of men, then your kingdom's going to return to you. And the seven till seven times passes over, that's seven years. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to endure this for seven years. But Hebrews 12 and verse 5 tells us, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. So in this case, the Lord is operating with Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, in the form of chastening. And he's doing something with him that is extremely drastic. Sometimes God will come by and he'll prod us and we don't listen. And then, have you ever been on a home repair project and you realize you need a bigger tool? And you go get a bigger tool and that still doesn't seem to do the job. This hammer is not breaking the concrete. It's just too thick. All right, go get a baby sledge. That's not getting the job done either. Let's go get a big sledge. Still not great. Go get Smitty the jackhammer. Ah, Smitty will get the job done. We don't want to get to the point where God has to bring Smitty the jackhammer into our life to break up our fallow ground, which has become like concrete. Because when he does that, it's not God's choice. He's doing it because he's trying (laughs) to get our attention and work with us. As parents, perhaps we've had to do the same thing when we discipline our kids. You try to motivate them with your words, and they don't listen. And you let them go, and you're long-suffering, and then you have to bring in something harsher and harsher. And the next thing you know, you look like the worst parent on the planet because the people around don't necessarily know all the other measures that you've already put in place. So moving right along, we, we talked about pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Proverbs 6.16, these six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. And the first one is pride. I think pride is one of the greatest sins that the Lord hates because it runs so contrary to his will and to his character. A proud look. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my majesty as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? This is pretty much the epitome of human nature and self coming and glorifying in our accomplishments. And it's, it's very similar to uh, Isaiah when, when it says, and I saw Satan fall like lightning. He says, I will rise up. I will ascend to the kingdom of the Most High. And, and that has been passed along to us through our human nature. God is not going to share His glory. He says in Jeremiah 27, 
and verse 5, it is I who by my great power and outstretched arms have made the earth. So God uses this terminology in relation to himself. Deuteronomy 26, 8, and the Lord delivered us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and great deeds of terror and signs and wonders. And Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. This ties back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus. My glory I give to no other. God does not want to share His glory. And Nebuchadnezzar has risen up to the point where God says, that's it. Here comes the judgment. So let's go to verse 34 so we can wrap this up. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. So this is after seven years. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand and or say to Him, What have you done? Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. There are some parallels here to what Job went through. Although a completely different set of circumstances, we see the end of Job we could say we also see the end of Nebuchadnezzar, that the Lord is very tender-hearted and compassionate, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He, he waits, and He waits. Isaiah says, therefore will the Lord wait that He might be gracious to you. He waits, and He waits, and He's long-suffering, longing that men and women would make the choice to come to Him. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the King of heaven, for His works are right and His ways are just, and those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. It seems that Nebuchadnezzar had a conversion experience. That's why they call this the gospel according to Nebuchadnezzar. But God waits, and He's willing to do what it takes to bring us to Christ. He rescued me out of a horrible pit. Once I was lost, I don't, I don't know the lines, I saw the light, but <laughs> I saw the light. Nebuchadnezzar saw the light. And it, it harkens back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. God is working all things together for good. To them who love God and are called according to His purpose, but I know that God was working all things together for good in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And we get inklings of that throughout the Old Testament. He's using Nebuchadnezzar to punish, to chastise his people. He's using them to, to bless nations in the world, just as Joseph's foresight blessed people uh, from, from the famine. He's using it for all these things. The dream tells us that he was the tree that went out, that the birds were, you know, the birds were nourished in there, and it gave shade and all of these other benefits. But he's also using Nebuchadnezzar in this situation to, uh, for his purposes, and then he says, I've got to deal specifically with just Nebuchadnezzar. Think of the macro view of what's going on with God's uh, use of Babylon at this period of time. All of the different moving pieces that God has going on in relation to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. But in this particular case, he comes down and he's going to deal specifically 
just with Nebuchadnezzar's heart. He's going to do it for a period of seven years, and he'll work that way in each and every one of our lives. The loved one that you're praying for, that person at work that you've been praying for and praying for, don't give up. You never know when the Lord is going to come through. And he's working, and he's working, and he's working. And we never know how God is going to to respond or how how someone's going to respond. Uh, A minister said that his sermons were like time bombs. I love love this. I've got to keep this in mind and, and use it. His sermons were like time bombs. They go off sometimes long after they've been preached. Sermons are like that. God says, you know, my word, it goes out. It will not return to me void. It will accomplish the purpose and the thing to which I sent it. So God's working all things together for good here. Some of you may have heard this story, but there was a famous singer by the name of uh, Charlotte Elliott, uh, and it took a confrontation in her life from a preacher by the name of Caesar Milan. And in London, a long time ago, there was a concert to which many famous people were invited, and among them was this preacher, Caesar Milan. And when the show was over, Milan approached this Mrs. Elliott, and he said to her, I thought as I listen to you tonight, how tremendously the cause of Christ might be benefited if your talents were dedicated to His cause. You know, young lady, this is, this is how to win friends and influence enemies. You are a sinner in the sight of God, but I'm glad to tell you that the blood of Jesus can cleanse you from all sin. And I believe in another place already said to her, you are a sinner in the sight of God just as much as the drunkard in the street. She's high society. Reminds me of a time when Walter Butler, I mentioned his name, he was a Bible school teacher and a preacher and AG, AG man in the uh, middle of the last century. God told him to go up and tell a lady who sang on the platform, he called her Susie, that her singing was an abomination to the Lord. How do you like that? He said, I didn't want to do that. She was a sweet girl. She'd bring me cookies. God had Bueller, oh, you, you, everyone listen to some of his messages, let me know. They're amazing. He finally goes and tells this girl, Susie, your singing is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. Well, she stomped off, hurt, crying. Three months later, she wrote him a letter. And she said, Brother Bueller, I just wanted to tell you that what you said to me, you were right. The Lord revealed to me the pride that was in my heart, and now I will only sing for Him, for His glory, and not for anything going on in my heart. His rebuke fell on fertile ground, and the Lord used it to restore. And she says, I I want you to know, I made you a record or a tape, I don't know at the time, of me singing all of your favorite hymns and gave it to Him as a gift. We never know what's going to happen with our obedience to the Lord. So coming back to this story, this singer, Mrs. Elliot, became so angry that she stomped her feet and she walked away. And as she was going away, the preacher said, I mean no offense, I will pray that God's Spirit will convict you. Very similar to how Daniel was entreating Nebuchadnezzar, please repent. When we go to people with the judgment of God, we need to do it humbly. And we need to warn them humbly and compassionately, please turn. Please turn from your ways. Turn to the Lord and entreat them that way. So this preacher Charles uh, uh, 
Caesar Milani did what he was supposed to. And so when the woman got home, and she tried to go to sleep, but the preacher's face and his words kept coming to her mind. And her sleep was disturbed, and she was under terrible conviction for her sins. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, she got out of her bed, and she took a pencil and a piece of paper. And with tears running down her cheeks, Charlotte Elliott wrote these words. Just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. That's an amazing story, and it's not just a story, it's a true story. They say that song's been sung by how many millions of people? It's been sung at Billy Graham, Evangelistic Crusades. But that song wasn't penned for Hollywood, and it wasn't penned for a record label. That was penned out of a heart of repentance, because somebody had the the willing obedience to go and tell her the truth. Daniel did the same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. And we need to be willing to do the same thing too when the Lord provides us with divine opportunities. We have to keep in mind that God is in control. He is control. He's behind the scenes, controlling the scenes that He is behind and the things that are going on in this nation and in the world today. He's got it under complete control. We have to go to His throne and we have to submit to it. Now we can pray and we should pray that God would change, that He would turn the evil back, that the world would come to their senses, that they would turn and come to the light. We need to do that. But we need to recognize too, as Romans chapter 13 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except for God, from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That should be a tremendous comfort to us today in the times in which we live and the things that are going on. All authorities are there and in place by God, and He can deal with each and every single one of them as He needs to, and God will preserve the righteous. That is a theme through this chapter. It's a theme all through the book of Daniel. God will preserve the righteous. And he is able to humble those that walk in pride. And we need to be careful that we don't walk in pride or God will humble us as well. If we come back to that illustration, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Dawn, if you could come back up now we go to prayer father we praise you this morning lord we thank you that lord we have seen the light in our lives and that's why we're here this morning lord that you've rescued many of us from the pit lord from a place of despair where we were on the broad road to destruction lord but you came and you rescued us lord you delivered us lord In whatever way you used in our lives, you did it in each and every life according to your sovereign will, Lord, and according to what our need was, Lord. And you've transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning that if there's one here who has been resisting you, Lord, who has not made the choice to make you Lord of their life. Lord, I pray that this message would go out this morning. Lord, that it would rest in hearts. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, harden not your heart. 
Accept God's way for you, the way of Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father but through Christ. If you're here today and you haven't made that decision and you walk out of here today not making that decision, you may think that you have time, but we never know in our lives when that and suddenly moment's going to come and life changes in an instant. I entreat you this morning, I encourage you, accept Christ into your life. Make Him your Lord and make Him your Savior. Submit your heart, your life, yield your heart and your life to the Lord. He's going to come in, He's going to make you a new creature. All things will pass away, all things become new. Simply takes a heart of repentance. As Nebuchadnezzar repented, as the story of Charlotte Elliot repented, as many, many of us have done, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of your mercy. Have mercy upon me, Lord, for I am a needy sinner, Lord God, in need of your grace, in need of your salvation. If you pray that prayer this morning in a heart of genuine faith, believing that Jesus Christ is God's Son, He's going to come into your heart. He's going to make you a new creature. He's going to save you from your sins and set you on the path of life. If you prayed that prayer this morning, could you raise your hand? I'd like to pray with you. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your salvation, Lord. Thank you for the ways that you work in our lives, Lord, even when it's painful. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work, Lord, for our best interest, Lord, individually as you did with Nebuchadnezzar, Lord, but also collectively as your church, Lord God, that you would form and mold and make us, Lord God. Equip your church, Lord, for this last hour. Equip your people, Lord. Captivate our hearts, Lord. Give us a distaste for the things of this world and the things that do not please you, Lord. And give us a taste and an appetite for the things that do. Lord, bless your people this morning. May this word stay in our hearts, Lord. Holy Spirit, multiply it, seal it, Lord God. Bring it back to remembrance, Lord, as you will in our need to encourage, to strengthen, Lord to turn, to bring us to repentance. Thank you that you're in control, Lord. Let us walk before you humbly, Lord God. In Jesus' name we ask this.